Lowry on the way. Good! Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Well, here we are again, Cavs fans, the Fear the Fro podcast, your host, Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cavalier fan, and we are now the owners of a five-game losing streak. All is not well in Cavalier country, but hopefully we'll shake out of that as the Cavs enter a stretch of games where if ever they were poised to get a win, four consecutive home games in a row would be a time for that. And the next team on the slate, the woeful Charlotte Hornets, just 4-12, and 14th in the Eastern Conference, 28th best offense in the league, 21st best defense, 26th overall in net rating. They can't even sniff our jocks, at least from an analytical standpoint. But a lot of their failings can be attributed to what was a very tumultuous offseason. Miles Bridges with legal issues regarding domestic abuse, allegations from an ex-girlfriend and Restraining orders still hasn't signed a long-term extension with the Charlotte Hornets, despite putting together an all-star viable year last year. Did not get selected, but certainly when the injury replacements were being announced, he was right there in contention along with Jared Allen for being selected into that all-star game. Did not happen, and he has not returned to the floor yet this season. LaMelo Ball has dealt with injury issues of his own, playing just three games. One of those three games was his return to the floor Last night, where unfortunately, he suffered yet another injury, stepped on the foot of somebody sitting in the courtside seats and rolled his ankle aggressively. It looked extremely painful. If you haven't seen that, there's a good clip of it on the House of Highlights IG that you can check out. And he was helped to the locker room. I think it's safe to say we probably won't see LaMelo Ball Friday against the Cavaliers. So who has led the way? Who has paced this team to their four victories? Well, Terry Rozier is leading the way. 21 points a game from him, but shooting pretty objectively badly. 39-33 splits. Oubre hovers around 41% from the floor. P.J. Washington hovers around 43% from the floor. Just one of their key contributors really shooting above 45%, and that's Dennis Smith Jr., a man back from the brink, a man who was all but out of the league and now comes in and is playing serviceable basketball in an unexpected larger role. 30 minutes a night for him because LaMelo has been out of the lineup between he and Terry Rozier and P.J. Washington and Kelly Oubre. That is just not going to get it done in a very deep Eastern Conference. But before we move ahead to the Charlotte Hornets, let's look back at the Milwaukee Bucks. I think there are some silver linings. The first is that we entered that game facing a team with one of the best players in the league, an MVP candidate, year in and year out, Giannis, who was averaging 30 points and 12 rebounds, giving you 19 points per game in the paint and eight at the stripe, 27 of those 30 points, the damage being done at or near the rim, knowing nothing of the result, which of course I already indicated was a loss, but assuming you didn't know that, and I told you Giannis is going to finish the game scoring only 16 points, shooting 6 of 18 from the floor, just 33%, and he'll go 4 of 11 from the stripe without a single three-pointer. 
you would probably feel pretty optimistic about our chances of victory. And his stat line, at least based on the incredible standard he has set for himself, was not good. 16 points, 12 rebounds, 8 assists. But what the Cavs did in limiting Giannis came at a cost. While I thought Lamar Stevens and Evan Mobley acquitted themselves very nicely in terms of throwing different looks at Giannis and preventing him from getting ahead of steam, it did not work out well in terms of kickouts to perimeter shooters or second-chance points from the Bucks, who got 13 offensive rebounds, which is far too many to give up. The Cavaliers out-rebounded by nearly 20 over the course of the game. Now, the story in the first half, you got a lot of Donovan Mitchell and Evan Mobley. They got involved early and often, but we did not pull away. Went into halftime just down by one point, and that was in large part because Brooke Lopez was tremendous. In the first quarter, three three-pointers, finished with 11 points. Jordan Nawara, he contributed 10 of his own. Did not miss from three-point land. A perfect six for six from those two Bucks players, which led them to a seven for 12 first quarter showing. So that little microcosm of the game, Brooke Lopez and Nawara bombing away from deep, would carry over throughout the whole game. Because at the end of the night, in a game where the Bucks made 16 three-pointers, 12 of those came from Brooke Lopez and Jordan Nawara. 21 points from Nawara. Lopez, 29 points, 5 rebounds, 3 blocks, and 7 for 9 from outside the arc. He absolutely buried the Cavs. In a battle between Robin Lopez and Brooke Lopez, I mean, his parents, if there was one in each fan section to show support, I'm sure they both moved to the Bucks section by the end of the game because <laughs> Robin put up a fat goose egg. And I said it on Twitter, but I have never wished harder that Robin Lopez ate Brooke Lopez in the womb when they were twins than I did yesterday after that seven three-pointer splashed in. Brooke Lopez looked all-worldly. Continuing a season in which he's seen his highest output in both scoring and rebounding since his days in Brooklyn, where he was a primary option. So he has acquitted himself quite nicely. And whereas Giannis had a slow first half, shot just one for four from the floor, only chipped in six points. Things were looking good. But the third quarter gave you 10 of Giannis's 16 points. And where things really swung was the third quarter for our Cleveland Cavaliers was one where Donovan Mitchell was basically non-existent. A minus 17 out there on the floor. He paced the way in minutes, playing 11 of the 12 minutes in the third quarter, and went 0 for 6 from the field. So coupled with a basic no-show by most of the supporting cast in terms of offensive players and offensive contributions is what led to a blowout by the Bucks. They pulled away in the second half, a 13-0 run in the third quarter, and they just started hammering nails into the coffin until 4.30 left in the fourth, where J.B. Bickerstaff had enough, pulled everyone, and sent in the end of the bench, guys. Isaiah Mobley got his chance to shine. But let's look at that second half. What really sunk the Cavs was more of Brooke Lopez, who in the third quarter piled on another 11 points and two blocks to finish with those 29 points. Nawara showed very well. And I was impressed with the rookie Bochamp who gave four offensive rebounds over the course of the game. That was problematic for the Cavs the whole way, the second-chance opportunities. And it's not surprising because, unfortunately, the downside of sending multiple people at Giannis and shading to that side of the court is you end up giving up 
more second chance points when you lose guys who who take advantage of the space that they're given to Rome while their defender's attention is focused elsewhere. But I think we can feel good about a couple of things. You got 23 points out of Mitchell and Garland, but they wouldn't even be the guys that I point to as the bright spots. I thought they had moments. I thought Mitchell began the first quarter well. I thought Garland began the second quarter well. The second half was not great. Not great. Karis Levert, no show from him. Only two points, two rebounds, three assists. Shot just one of five from the field. The woes continue for him in terms of his interior shooting. Tonight was definitely a night where we needed more from the secondary guys because Love, just five points. Osman, just four points. Lavert, two points. That's not going to get it done. That's putting far too much pressure on Donovan Mitchell, on Darius Garland, on Evan Mobley. So Mobley's 20 and seven. It's a nice bounce back from the Timberwolves game where Rudy Gobert effectively locked him up. But the other bright spot would be Lamar Stevens. Somewhat quiet from a sheer numbers standpoint. Shot just three for 10 from the field. But four blocks and a key part in slowing Giannis. Stevens isn't going to be looked at to score all the time. He knocked in a couple of three-pointers. He was aggressive going to the hoop. A lot of those misses came on debatable fouls. He attacked the rim. He tried to go at guys. He missed some shots. He missed some dunks. He got some... Potential fouls not whistled, so he had to play through it. And that didn't do much for his efficiency on the box score. But I think to the people who watched the game, you had to feel pretty good about how aggressive and assertive he was because that's what we were lacking. Love only took three shots. Lavert only took five shots. Okoro, his typical, only three shots. Made two of them, though, by the way. If you were on Cavs Twitter, you would have seen a parade being thrown for the guy because he scored four points. Stevens, however... For as bad as he was at converting some of those looks, I did like that he forced the action and pressed the rim. And his defense is going to be very useful, at least until Dean Wade gets back. And then hopefully the two of those guys can provide some alternating looks and we can see both of their minutes increase substantially. It should be noted that both of our teams were decimated by injuries. The Cavaliers missing all-star center Jared Allen, who will be massively impactful in future matchups with the Bucks, and who I think we're seeing over the course of this losing streak, the type of cushion that his defense can provide you. These games are tight, but Jared Allen is the type of guy who can totally change the fortunes on the other end of the floor alongside Mobley to give us a little bit more breathing room, and we're not getting that right now. Now, we may not need it against a team like the Hornets, but his absence is very visible. If anything speaks to his value, this string of games definitely accentuate that. We were also missing Dean Wade, who's been out for a couple of games now. His return will be welcome. But the Bucks were missing six guys. Drew Holiday, Grayson Allen, Pat Connaughton, Wes Matthews, Joe Ingles, and of course, Chris Middleton, who's been gone the whole year. That team is going to be a very difficult matchup. The Celtics are going to be a very difficult matchup. The Hawks, who we will see in this homestand, that will be a very difficult matchup. This is definitely the time of the season to work out these rotations. And if anything positive came from this five-game losing streak, I think you could say that Lamar Stevens' emergence, he played 34 minutes last night. Now, he won't get those minutes when we're fully healthy, but I think he's at least made the case that he should get 15 to 20 when Dean Wade is out there and when we're fully healthy, and hopefully that'll be the way that it goes. But let's take the focus off the Cavs' suffering and put it on other teams in the league who are also miserable at the moment. One of those being the Brooklyn Nets, both miserable in terms of their 
visual aesthetic, and miserable in terms of all the off-court drama that surrounds them. The Nets, coming off two straight losses, they sit at just 6-9, and and they've lost to the Lakers, double digits, without LeBron James, and then 153 hung on them by the Sacramento Kings in a blowout. You would think that emotions are raw. However, Kevin Durant sat down with Chris Haynes in the aftermath of that loss to the Kings to talk about what his frame of mind was when he requested the trade this summer and where he's at with this team moving forward. And if I had to describe the general tone of the interview, I would say that it's positive. He seems to be pretty happy, but there were some quotes which are circulating, which don't necessarily reflect well on Kevin Durant. The most prominent one being a quote in which he seems to have called out the rest of the Nets starting lineup. Quote, look at our starting lineup. Edmund Sumner, Royce O'Neal, Joe Harris, Nick Claxton, and me. It's not disrespect, but what are you expecting from that group? You expect us to win because I'm out there. So if you're watching from that lens, you're expecting us to play well because number seven is out there. Certainly, yes. I understand how that could be received as look at the rest of this starting lineup. It blows. But alternate view of it. Maybe he was trying to highlight the fact that he doesn't have Ben Simmons or Kyrie Irving in the lineup at all. Two of the guys who are expected to be the second and third best player on this team. And instead, they're stringing together a skeleton crew because Kyrie is out here spreading his anti-Semitic propaganda and Ben Simmons might not even like playing basketball in the first place. So we can't sit here and crush Kyrie for being evasive and refusing to answer questions or refusing to even denounce anti-Semitic work and then get angry at Kevin Durant for being honest, just because we don't like what we hear. What we need, ideally, is somewhere between the two. Honesty, but without dickish comments. That would be the ideal middle ground between these two people. You have terrible things being presented by Kyrie with no ability to even defend them or explain it. And then you have negative things presented by Kevin Durant, but followed up by quotes about how happy he is and how he means no harm. I would prefer the latter over the former, but maybe somewhere in the middle. And there were quotes in this article that reflected that Kevin Durant is having a good time. In fact, he said that directly. I'm really having a good time. I wish you could all hear me talk during the game. If I got mic'd up more, people would stop asking me if I'm happy. I'm enjoying every moment I step on this court. And part of it is because I tore my Achilles and the pandemic. I didn't know if we'd play again. I didn't know if I was going to play again. I was just like... This can't be for me. I have to really enjoy every single moment. That's part of being a pro. I have to be coachable and knock down shots. I have to be aggressive and talk to my teammates the right way. That's the journey and the battle. My legacy is predicated on what Cam Thomas is learning from me and what he'll take away to help him by the time he's in his 10th year. That's my legacy. What I did with Andre Roberson, being able to play with Westbrook and Curry and Kyrie and still be me. That's my legacy. That's who I am and what I bring to the game. I can play with anybody, anywhere, anytime, and you know I'm going to bring it every day. That should be my legacy. Now, that quote didn't get as much run, but it should, because that is a positive message. He is reinforcing the thing that makes Durant as valuable as he is. He fits in any system. And while people crush him for being too differential, deferential, excuse me, because he is a Hall of Fame talent, at the same time, that's what makes him so great is that he's not the type of guy that you bring in, like a Kyrie, that he can destroy a team from within. Now, criticize him, if you will, for sitting there on the sidelines, largely silent, as Kyrie Irving does just that with the Brooklyn Nets, 
But you can't fault him for wanting to just focus on the court. Because if there is a big criticism of Kyrie, it's that his focus is on everything but the basketball court all the time. That's the amazing thing, is that these two are the two that chose to pair up. You have Kyrie, who didn't even want to come back in the bubble because he wanted to focus on the racial equality and maybe we shouldn't be playing basketball at all. And then you have Kevin Durant, who just wants to play basketball. It's kind of crazy that these two are as good of friends as they are. To that whole Kyrie Irving thing, there's another quote that I wanted to play you. This is from Jalen Brown, who was questioned in a press conference after one of his games about the harshness of the Kyrie Irving checklist punishment and if he thought that it was a good thing. And he had the following to say about Nets owner, Joe Sy. Yeah, his response was alarming to me. I tweeted that out yesterday. He didn't say that um, the organization was working together to get Kyrie back on the floor. He, he said that he had more work to do. Um, and our society has more work to do, including Joe Sy. And it's 2022. Um, it takes 10 minutes of time to see who, you know, these business owners, corporations, et cetera, who they're associated with, who they're doing business with, and who they're affiliated with. And to see Phil Knight first come out and condemn, you know, Kyrie, and also see Joe Sy say he has more work to do, I think it's time for a larger conversation. Um, so those are my thoughts. That's a whole lot of whataboutism coming out of Jalen Brown's mouth there. And that's generally what people do when they can't actually defend the actions of a person. What about Brett Favre? Kyrie doubles down. Well, what about Joe Sy? Kyrie triples down. Well, what about Phil Knight? People aren't going to forget that there was no resolution to the first situation just because you brought up some other things that definitely need to be addressed in society. Nobody in this whole conversation about Kyrie has said that hypocrisy doesn't exist. Nobody has said, let's punish Kyrie because Joe Sy is a perfect human being. Hasn't been said. But the conversation is not about Joe Sy because Joe Sy has by and large said nothing. He's done the thing that most people do, which is recognize an unwinnable, untenable situation to speak about publicly and avoid it. And I'm not praising him for that. I'm saying that if you can't understand why one party is dominating the headlines due to their own actions and why nobody is really discussing Joe Sy right now, then you just don't understand how the world works. You want to have a conversation about the hypocrisy of the NBA being in bed with Nike when they support regimes who commit human rights atrocities, then sure, we can have all these you're a horrible person by proxy conversations. But there's a pretty obvious reason why people are less willing to engage in those conversations, and it's because there's a huge portion of our population who are complicit in what Nike has built. How many people have bought jerseys or apparel that Nike sells? How many people are wearing sneakers right now? So to make the argument as Jalen Brown that, why aren't we talking about Nike? They're horrible. People have to confront the reality that they've probably put money in the pockets of this alleged horrible corporation. And it's always been way harder for people to turn the mirror around on themselves than it is to just look at Kyrie doing something which most people probably wouldn't do, which is double down on the anti-Semitism stuff. People acting incredulous as to why Kyrie Irving has still not been forgiven by a big portion of the population, it's because he's not sorry. That's the be-all, end-all of it. He's not repentant. He doesn't think he did anything wrong. And there's just going to be people who disagree with that. There's a much different standard that we hold companies to than we hold individuals. 
businesses have and probably always will be judged first and foremost on their balance sheet, their ability to generate profits and create jobs for people. People don't judge businesses on a moral basis because they're not individuals. Self-interest will make people overlook a lot of things. And that's the case of Nike. That's the case of people who love the NBA. That's not to say that it's right, but it's a reality. And if Kyrie was providing something for the public, they would be far more forgiving here. But he doesn't provide anything. He destroys people's favorite teams. He moves on to the next team. He destroys that team. And that's to say nothing of how crazy it is to compare an individual's actions on their own social media with Joe Tsai's inability to stop an entire regime from exploiting the Uyghurs as a small shareholder in Alibaba, the third largest shareholder, not even the primary shareholder. Joe Tsai, who everybody is looking to as the man responsible for all of their actions morally, owns just 1.4% of the stock. He's not the owner. People, we judge them far differently. We expect people to be inherently good and do good things. And when people have platforms, we expect them to espouse love and support and good for mankind and all that. We can turn to all of our businesses like Amazon and Alibaba and Nike and say, well, we have a certain expectation of a level of morality. And that is a conversation. But can we stop paralleling the actions of individuals to the actions of companies? Stop trying to just tell people to look at a different car accident. People still aren't satisfied with the results of this one. But that's enough about Kyrie Irving, Jalen Brown, yet again, sucked back into this drama. I want to get focused on more positive things like a Cavaliers win against the Hornets. Thank you to everyone who has listened to the Fear the Fro podcast. I'm Bob Schmidt. I appreciate your subscriptions. I appreciate your ratings and everybody who has found this podcast. More Cavalier basketball, more NBA basketball on the way on the next episode. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.